The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the first episode, we began to ask and answer one of many classical questions posed by atheists, secular humanists, the world, and sadly by many who should know better, but have perhaps never done their theological homework. In this case, the question asked was, if God is a God of love, then how could God order the killing of every Canaanite man, woman, and child? During part one of this episode, we discussed four issues, including the lack of intellectual sincerity, intellectual honesty, the hypocrisy, and the lack of ultimate authority possessed by atheists and secular humanists who are generally the ones asking these types of questions. In this episode, we intend to continue answering our question as well as completing the accompanying discussion and study. 
As before, our goal is to come away with a better understanding of God's nature as well as our relationship to Him. Our next issue is number five. Number five, our next issue in answering our question, deals with God's sovereignty. In its most basic terms, man must come to grips with the reality that whether we like it or not, whether we agree or not, the fact remains that God is in control. If God is not completely in control at all times, then God ceases to be God and cannot be blamed for anything, good or bad, as a result. If God is in control, then he does not need anyone else to agree or disagree with his actions. He's not looking for approval or disapproval of anything, since whatever he does, he does according to his own perfect counsel and pleasure. The problem originates when man chooses to attempt to question or supplant God's sovereignty with his own. In this scenario, the universe can be analogized to that of a small island. As long as there is only one person on that island, that person can say or do anything they please without approval or disapproval from anyone else. However, the moment we place another person on the same island, we now have a conflict regarding who is sovereign on that island, who's in control. This brings us to the second accompanying issue of property rights. Number six, the sixth issue is that of property rights. In other words, who has ownership? In the example of the island above, there is no mention of who owns the island. We may infer arbitrary rules such as finders keepers, first come first serve, or the person with the most gold makes the rules, but in reality our island is created, maintained, and owned by God. Just so, Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 declare that God is the author of all things. Quote, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and, are, and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist." Unquote. This means that the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the Middle East, Palestine, the land of Canaan, the Israelites, the Canaanites, and every man, woman, and child created through history were and are owned, sustained, and belong exclusively to God. This is the lesson taught by Jeremiah 18 in the story of the potter's wheel. The moral of the story reminds us that God creates and owns the clay from which he chooses to make vessels of various kinds according to his own counsel and pleasure. He can take the same clay and make an ashtray or Venus de Milo. 
When finished, he can place either item into a place of honor, or he can destroy it and start over as he sees fit. There's no democratic or parliamentary process in the place for the clay. There's no morality or immorality, no equality or inequality inherent in the process. Only the outcome. Because God owns the property, i.e. the clay, he is free to do whatever he sees fit with it. Now, the idea that you and I, the Canaanites or anyone else, are property under the exclusive ownership of God runs contrary to our humanistic instincts of autonomy. On many levels, mankind lives, strives, and fights wars to establish the right of individual freedoms and self-determination. However, the reality is that the majority of the rights and privileges gained or lost are in fact issues which are horizontal from man to man, person to person, group to group. When we talk about vertical issues between God and man revealed by God's word, we see a different set of values. First of all, we see that we are the created image bearers of God. However, that image remains intact only so long as we remain covered by His grace through faith in His spoken word and His righteousness as exemplified and imputed by Jesus via a relationship with Him. As stated, this relationship is conditional based upon His grace to those whom he is pleased to be reconciled to a restored fellowship with himself, or to remain in rebellion separated from God by our own sinful nature. In God's economy, man is bankrupt in and of himself. Man is in need of help from God to overcome his inability to merit God's favor. Because God lives both inside and outside of time in eternity, he sees the heart. God knows exactly where each and every person truly is on this scale at any given time. God also knows the future since he has been and is there. This reality demonstrates an important truth about God and our relationship to him. From a humanistic, finite standpoint, we really cannot definitively say what the status of any person's spiritual future will be. We hope and we pray. We try our best to make educated guesses. But none of us know what God is pleased to do in eternity. As a result, the only thing we as mortals can do is to assign everyone the same potential hope. God, on the other hand, already knows the ending of the book. The question arises then, if God knows all things from eternity, whose fault is it if any person ultimately rebels against God? Well, Let's look at it this way. Assuming we are all drowning in a raging river, 
and God throws every single person a lifesaver, then how does saving every single person without exception demonstrate God's justice towards sin and rebellion? Conversely, although God would be just in allowing everyone in the river to perish due to sin and rebellion, how would doing so demonstrate God's mercy? Consequently, since God has many attributes, including both justice and mercy, God is constrained by the perfection of all his attributes to execute his sovereign will to all of his attributes. Here again, we must admit that everyone now drowning in the river are drowning due to the fact each person has abandoned God and jumped in the water despite God's clear instruction to stay away from the water to avoid drowning. Given this kind of scenario wherein rebellion exists, we have to honestly ask why God would be obliged to save anyone. The answer is that he doesn't. He could allow everyone to drown and start all over again. He could do nothing at all. He could save everyone regardless. Whatever he does or doesn't do is his prerogative. Those who would, for whatever reason, assign themselves to observe and comment on the process, having no standing to make judgment because everyone and everything that goes into, remains, or comes out of the river is the property of God. There are those who would observe and complain because God seemingly allows some to drown while others God seemingly plucks out. There are those who see unfairness with anyone falling into the river to begin with. Because God is control, some would accuse God of pushing them into the water or putting the water there to begin with. But in the end, a proper perspective allows us to see God's grace demonstrated to some while he is under obligation to none. A correct assessment sees hope for some when and if it were not for God's mercy, there would be no hope at all. Number seven. The seventh issue is justice. Everyone, including humanists, tend to eagerly gravitate to the idea that God is quote-unquote love. Even atheists will embrace God so long as God is characterized by quote-unquote love as they define it. By this definition, the world relishes the notion that God loves everyone and everything all the time, regardless of what they think, do, or believe. Taken to its logical conclusion, you can be the most immoral person breathing, rebel against God every day, yet despite everything, God loves you. Within this camp, God is never angry. God is never upset with any sin, no matter how depraved. Decisions, choices, behavior, character, moral, ethics are irrelevant to God. Because we are, quote-unquote, all God's children, God is going to just excuse everyone 
Give them a pass and let everyone come into heaven and enjoy eternal life, regardless of whether they honored him, trusted him, believed in him, lived for him or not. For those interested in a more complete discussion of a correct biblical understanding of God's love, I would direct the listener to the episode entitled, Questions About God's Love. In the meantime, in the interest of time, I would summarize the matter by recalling that it is not our humanistic ideas and definitions of quote-unquote love which define God. Instead, it is God and His revelation through His Word which defines and exemplifies His love. It is also equally important to understand that love is not the only characteristic revealed of God's nature. God is also perfectly just, righteous, trustworthy, merciful, holy, pure, as well as loving, just to name a few. Consequently, when man attempts to force God into a box of his preference, labeled with exclusive descriptions like, quote-unquote, love alone, then God ceases to be truly, fully, completely, and perfectly God by absence of his total attributes and nature. Contrary to the belief that God is singularly and exclusively characterized by love, when we read scripture in context, we find verses like the following. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, quote, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity, unquote. Also, Psalm chapter 37, verse 9, quote, For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land, unquote. These verses and others bear a direct correlation not only on the topic of God's nature, but also the issue of the Canaanites and others. Here, as opposed to the idea that God only loves everyone, no matter what, we find that in reality, a person's nature, behavior, thoughts, heart motives, ideas, and character bear great impact on God's interaction with them. Here we find out that instead of God having pleasure with any manner of deviant or immoral behavior, God in fact has no pleasure in wickedness. Instead of the idea that no person can ever be evil in God's eyes, or that there is, in fact, no evil, we find out that evil does exist, and that God has no pleasure with those who choose evil. Instead of the idea that all men are intrinsically good and noble, we find out that all have sinned, and that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. 
we find that there are workers of iniquity who exist in the world, and when these abandon themselves completely to that iniquity, they are hated by God. Finally, as opposed to the idea that God is only love, and that he never ever makes any distinctions or passes any judgment on anyone, we find out that the destiny of those who abandon themselves to evil are to be destroyed. Simultaneously, we find out that those who are drawn to place their hope in God, despite being imperfect, will live and inherit the land. This poses an important question which needs to be asked. If we assume that God was looking at both Israel and the Canaanites, what did he see? Remember, today we are several thousand years removed from the historical, earthly, and physical reality of the matter. More importantly, now or then, all man is removed entirely from the reality of the heart, mind, and spirit of the situation. Unlike man, God sees all via eternity, past, present, and future. Based upon this, God would be the only one who would be able to make an analysis on the truth of the matter. He would also be able to make a decision on the Canaanites or anyone else he chooses based upon his property rights. If God chooses to abandon, kill, destroy, punish, or reward a person or persons, we can only claim that God is being unloving when we first arbitrarily assign God to humanistic definitions of love. However, once we recognize all of God's attributes, we are constrained to give God the benefit of acting in one case according to his justice, holiness, and righteousness, so that he can profoundly display his love in another case. Number 8. The eighth issue is separation. When we look back at the central message revealed in this series of episodes entitled Moses the Deliverer, we saw several pertinent things given by God's word as types and shadows. The first was that Moses was the type of Jesus, both of whom were deliverers given by God to free his chosen people Israel the type of all God's chosen people. They were to be delivered from Egypt, the type of sin, and were sent into the wilderness where they were tested, refined, and prepared by God to inherit the promised land, which is the type of heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14-18, through 18, Paul gives us pertinent information regarding separation. Quote, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light 
with darkness. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell with them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty." In John chapter 8, Jesus confronts the scribes and the Pharisees regarding the woman taken in adultery. In verses 44 through 47, Jesus concludes the following regarding the scribes and Pharisees. Quote, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, and ye believe me not, which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God." Unquote. These two instances, as well as others from the New Testament, point out the underlying truth that there is a polarized economy within God's economy. Believers versus unbelievers. Righteousness versus unrighteousness. Light versus darkness. Christ versus Satan. The two cannot be reconciled. It's impossible to slap a bumper sticker slogan reading coexist on the two and expect that warm and fuzzy pop culture sentiments will magically rebalance a creation stricken by man's sin and rebellion. Instead, we must realize that mankind is locked in universal war between God and Satan. The here and now, all of human history, as well as the earth, are the battleground where God is sovereignly working out the issues of man's eternal state according to his perfect counsel. There's also a time clock which is running out. Like the type depicted in Exodus, God is calling all his people to repentance, to be separated from Egypt, the type of sin, and follow Jesus, the deliverer, by faith to the promised land. By God's definition, no person can be called out, separated from the world, and at the same time be of the world. This is one of the primary reasons why we find this episode of the Canaanites and other cities who were in the midst of ground zero where Israel, God's people, are to live and occupy the promised land. Whether we are talking about the earthly promised land 
heaven or each believer's life which is to be surrendered to Christ, the dynamic is the same. In each case, God is calling his people out to be separated from evil, wickedness, rebellion, idolatry, and the like. God is calling us to holiness, not to compromise. There are innumerable type and shadows scattered throughout the Bible which have a bearing on separation. Leaven is yet another example. Beginning in Exodus again, God gives Moses the various prohibitions against leaven in certain instances. Contrary to the idea by secular minds that the Jews were simply being superficial or institutionally religious or just silly, God demonstrates the substance of keeping leaven, i.e. the type of sin, within the life of those who are God's people. It's simply an axiom. Our old nature remains, like leaven, conducting constant warfare against the new nature. Satan, the world, and our flesh seek to grow the leaven and take over the lump. God is simply stating that it is his desire for those whom he has called to be reconciled into the image of his Son by his grace through faith in the finished work of his Son and by the gift and power of his indwelling Spirit which quickens us to the newness of life. Our old nature, the leaven, is buried with Christ. The new nature is risen by the power of Christ. The substantive truth of leaven is revealed by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Quote, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Unquote. So, separation is the spiritual dimension and component which is inevitably missed completely by the atheist and secular humanists who lodged the complaint regarding the issue of the Canaanites. This is totally understandable given the fact that the atheist and secular humanists would deny the reality and existence of the spiritual realm. They would likely dismiss fail to understand or deny the various issues discussed thus far. They are unable to discern the truth and reality of most, if not all, of the points involved, because in order to give proper discernment, one must first have God's Spirit via the new birth. Once we have God's Spirit, God's Spirit imparts many gifts to the believer, including the gift of discernment, whereby we may better understand and comprehend God and his word. Thus, the episode of the Canaanites is another clear type and demonstration of the importance of separation and sanctification in the life of God's people. Number nine. The ninth issue is wartime ethics. As we view the issue and incident of the Canaanites, it is critical to remember that the entire approach to and the outcome of the Canaanites is one guided by wartime ethics. 
This war is also to be perceived on two fronts, both of which ultimately are designed to converge. The first front is the spiritual war declared by Satan against God, both in the heavenlies and on earth. This war was made possible by Adam and Eve's choice to rebel and to thus empower Satan over them and to enslave all mankind captive to the effects of sin. Thus, as we begin to look forward in history at various events, we must always realize that whatever unpleasant, distasteful, bad, or evil things that we see are a casualty result of the war brought upon us by Satan and our own disobedience. Second, the physical creation made by God, including physical places, people, things, are all the battlefield subject to this war. Now, while we may not agree with war or with this war, nevertheless, the war exists, and it is very important to know the rules of engagement, the enemy, and the stakes. We must remember that with man... The morals and ethics of war are constantly up for debate. They are endlessly in the human committee of dispute based upon the culture, opinion, consensus of each society according to percentage of the populace. In the end, when all is lost and ultimate life and death survival is on the line, there is likely little, if anything, which is not permissible for that survival. These are all issues which were, are, and will remain issues in flux whenever we are talking about man's ethics, whether they be the ethics of war, or the ethics of sports, or anything else. With man, there is no universally constant ethic. There is only the ethic of the moment until it is no longer convenient. But with God... Ethics, morals, beauty, meaning, right and wrong are always constant, consistent, and good according to his perfect nature. This would include the war against Satan and those who are ultimately in allegiance to him. The reality is that those who antagonistically accuse God of being unethical are simply polarized from God's perfect righteousness. They're never going to see that all of what God is doing is perfect, right, ethical, and moral because they begin with the unfounded assumption that it is they who hold ultimate authority regarding what is and what is not perfect, right, ethical, and moral. In any case, it is important to realize that we are typically morally encumbered in properly looking at the ethics of this incident because we forget that it is God and not man who is setting the definitions for ethics and morals, including those of war. Two, we forget that even by secular standards, we are 3,000 years plus removed from the ethics and morals of the incident of the Canaanites versus the ethics and morals of today. Thirdly, 
we are talking about wartime ethics and not the ethics and morals under view during non-war. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part three. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.